Hello, and welcome to the Restoric Care May 2019 podcast. This month's Editor's Choice is a retrospective evaluation of the impact of organ dysfunction at the onset of ARDS on severity and outcomes. The study examined 15 years of quality assurance data on the use of lung protective ventilation in ARDS. The authors reported that non-pulmonary organ dysfunction was present in at least one system at ARDS onset and increased with ARDS severity. They concluded that non-pulmonary organ dysfunction is present in ARDS at onset in most patients, but is more pronounced as ARDS severity increases as judged by the PF ratio. In an accompanying editorial, Suba and Dugal suggest that data regarding organ failure at the diagnosis of ARDS may allow therapies aimed at modifying outcomes. Since organ failure severity and number are associated with mortality, this would appear in a ideal time to attempt early interventions. Karashima now evaluated the variation in albuterol delivery during intrapulmonary percussive ventilation in a lung model. They found that albuterol delivery increased almost twofold with decreasing percussion frequency. Decreasing percussion frequency is also associated with an increased tidal volume, and albuterol delivery was correlated with increased tidal volume. Increased airway resistance reduced albuterol delivery, whereas changing compliance had no significant impact. Increasing the operating pressure increased albuterol delivery and increased peak inspiratory pressure. This may occur simply due to an increase in tidal volume. Berlinski opines that the lack of monitoring and performance of IVB might place patients at risk for barotrauma due to the device's poor aerosol delivery characteristics. Mortimed and co-workers evaluated work of breathing and disease during a spontaneous breathing trial in children using oxygen consumption, esophageal pressure, and electrical activity of the diaphragm. They found that the small increase in worker breathing during a spontaneous breathing trial resulted in a non-significant increase and electrical activity of the diaphragm and esophageal pressure swings. They also noted that changes in oxygen consumption were insensitive to these slight increases in work. Smallwood suggests that this work highlights the lack of sensitivity of oxygen consumption in assessing changes in respiratory workload. Additionally, he believes this topic requires further scrutiny with regard to using variables to determine successful ventilator liberation in pediatrics. Ultrasound of the lung and diaphragm is an exciting new monitoring tool in the intensive care unit. Zhao and others used lung ultrasound and measures of procalcitonin to diagnose ventilator-associated pneumonia. They found that positive findings on lung ultrasound, as evidenced by consolidation, and a procalcitonin greater than 0.25 nanograms per milliliter diagnosed VAP at a sensitivity and specificity of over 80%. This preliminary evidence suggests that the use of ultrasound might be helpful in evaluating ventilator-associated pneumonia. The journal has published a number of studies regarding home mechanical ventilation around the world. In this issue, Kim et al. evaluate the use of home mechanical ventilation in South Korea. Using insurance data, the authors report that nearly 5,000 patients were ventilated at home, a prevalence of 9.3 per 100,000 individuals. Neuromuscular disease was the most common diagnosis, with half of these patients receiving non-invasive ventilation. The authors compare their results to data from Canada, Europe, and North America. Morris and colleagues report on pulmonary function tests of military members deployed to Southwest Asia. Respiratory health may be impacted by burn pit emissions, chemical and dust exposures, as well as tobacco use. Over a three-year period, they compare pre- and post-deployment spirometry on over 800 service members. Post-deployment testing with spirometry and impulse oscillometry was unable to detect any significant changes. 
they conclude that using spirometry did not identify individuals with post-deployment lung disease and that routine use is not warranted in the absence of pulmonary symptoms. Onadera et al. evaluated contamination of high-flow nasal cannula and oxygen delivery tubing in a group of individuals in the ICU. In 31 devices, they found contamination of the surface of the cannula in five subjects. This level of contamination after 48 hours is likely from the patient, and the importance of these findings is unclear. The frequency at which devices like ventilator circuits during high-frequency nasal cannula are changed requires further study. Luzarga and others evaluated a mindfulness-based intervention on physical and emotional stress in respiratory therapists. They found that mindfulness interventions were feasible and could be used in the work environment. The impact of these techniques on the health and the well-being of caregivers needs additional evidence. Measuring breathing frequency is a common practice in pulmonary medicine. Takiyama et al. studied methods for counting breathing frequency for accuracy. They evaluated a count for 15 seconds, 60 seconds, and the breathing time measurement in a group of normal individuals. They reported that the breathing time measurement was closer to the frequency measured for 60 seconds than a frequency counted for 15 seconds and multiplied by 4. In another study of ultrasound, Eltrabilli and others used ultrasound to predict ventilator liberation in septic subjects. While this is a small study of only 30 subjects, they demonstrated that diaphragmatic ultrasound indices could be useful parameters for assessment of successful ventilator liberation. Andriotta et al. evaluated reduced FEV1, FVC, and FEV1 as normal physiologic variants in normal subjects, subjects with asthma, and subjects with COPD. The data suggests that a reduced FEV1, FVC ratio may be a normal finding in younger to middle-aged male subjects unrelated to lung disease. Kaminsky and Jerembowski evaluated the impact of mouth pressure on the measurement of diffusing capacity in a group of 336 subjects presenting for pulmonary function testing. The median mouth pressure of 4.5 centimeters of water pressure with a range from minus 13 to 31 centimeters of water pressure. Their analysis failed to demonstrate any impact of mouth pressure on the results of diffusing capacity. Longhini and co-workers evaluated the use of neurally adjusted ventilatory assistance subjects with COPD using a helmet interface. They compared short trials of NAVA to traditional pressure support at similar tidal volumes. They concluded that NAVA via the helmet improved comfort trigger performance and patient ventilator synchrony compared to traditional pressure support. Al-Torari et al. contribute another study of incentive spirometry in this issue. They found that visual obstruction of the flow indicator resulted in increased inspiratory volumes. They concluded that since achieving target inspiratory volumes is the most important factor in successful incentive spirometry, their findings may allow for improved incentive spirometry protocols, patient education, and perhaps alterations in device design. Stevens and colleagues provide an invited review of mechanical ventilation in pre-hospital care and emergency department. The authors have published extensively on this topic, demonstrating that ventilator-induced lung injury can occur early and lung protective practices need to begin early as well. Roberts contributes a 2018 year in review of the important papers on invasive mechanical ventilation in adults. We thank you for listening to the Restorative Care Podcast. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.